The reading is from John chapter 4, verses 27 to 42. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking to her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do with the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, those who reap draw their wages. Even now, they harvest the crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labour. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Christopher Bryan. I'm the Archdeacon of Malmesbury. It's my role to support churches and clergy and congregations across the eastern half of the Diocese of Bristol. My area goes from uh, Yate and Oldland all the way over to East Swindon. And one of the great joys in what I do is coming to share worship in different churches every week. So it's a real pleasure and a privilege to be with you today. Let's pray. Lord, please use my human words and use them to open up your written word that we may behold your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now, I wonder if you know what I mean when I use the word hangry. Does the word hangry mean anything? Okay, I may, may need to explain this a little bit. It's spelt like angry, but it's got the letter H in front of it. And anyone who's spent time with a preschool child will recognise the phenomenon, because dear little Henry Jekyll, who's been absolutely delightful for the past hour, suddenly turns into a miniature Master Hyde. Nothing's right, and nothing that you can do will make it any better. Everything is wrong. And then suddenly, you realise it's been a little while since lunch, and the blood sugar levels have got a bit low. And it's amazing what a, an apple or a cream cracker will do. And suddenly, 
dear little Henry is his sweet, normal self again. He's hungry and angry. Hangry. That's what it means. And there was a real breakthrough for me when I realised that adults could get hangry too. And I think I've become much easier to live with uh, since we realised this, particularly on long car journeys or on a big day out. But I don't think I've ever come close to what Jesus describes in our reading, though. In, um, in John chapter 4, he talks about how he is so spiritually filled up with speaking to this Samaritan woman that he doesn't need to eat. I, I need my food. I don't think I've ever been in that place. I don't think I've ever been so busy I've forgotten to eat. I don't think, I'm afraid, that I've ever been so spiritually on fire that I haven't needed to eat. Of course, there are times, aren't there, when you decide, actually, I don't need to eat now, or I'm going to wait, or I'm going to make a deliberate choice to fast at a particular time for a particular thing. But Jesus is describing something quite different. In that reading, he's sharing the good news with this woman, and he finds he doesn't need to eat. It's so, so joyful, so inspiring, so life-giving. And it was at this point in the sermon that my phone buzzed, and I got a message from a colleague saying, I'm in the meeting, where are you? So, yeah, food matters, but I can get so engaged that I can quite happily forget a meeting. I gathered last week, Paul preached on the first part of John chapter 4. And that describes how Jesus stops at a well in Samaria and he asks a woman to give him a drink. And we know that Jews and Samaritans didn't mix. We also know that men and women culturally didn't talk to each other. It really wasn't the done thing if you weren't part of that woman's family. I suppose an analogous situation might be if you imagined an American soldier before they left Afghanistan going up to a woman in a burqa and asking for a snack. You just wouldn't do it. She's surprised, obviously. She's a bit feisty. But Jesus gets through the sarcasm and he uncovers a deeply wounded soul and he speaks to her about living water. And the conversation ends as they've talked about the Messiah, with Jesus saying, actually, I'm the one speaking to you. I'm the Messiah. And so as we begin the reading today, perhaps if we could go back to the, I thought it's always useful to have the text at the, on the screen, if that's all right, please. If we go back to the beginning of the reading, um, the disciples are disappearing just as the, sorry, the, the disciples are arriving just as the woman leaves. And did you notice that she leaves her water jar behind? John never mentions anything without a reason. And the reason is that she has now found the living water in Jesus. She came to get water. Jesus said, if you had the living water, you wouldn't need to come here. She said, give me that water and I won't have to keep coming back again and I'll be full up forever. And, and that's, what, that's what happens. She's found Jesus. She doesn't need the water jar. It's John's symbolism. It's wonderful. And Jesus is, in response to the disciples' question, don't you need something to eat? 
Jesus says, actually, no. My food is to do the will of the Father who sent me. Now, my wife's been winding me up about this a bit because basically my big insight, and this is an important insight for me, but the really big insight I've had as I've thought about this is that Jesus loves me more than hangry. That is important for me because I'm somebody who really feels that hangry. But Jesus loves us so much that those physical desires he felt as a human being could actually be completely forgotten about. He's so focused on that woman and her needs that he doesn't feel the hunger. He doesn't feel the thirst. Not at that point. And he loves us, each one of us, like that. He loves me, he loves you. With that laser-like focus. And of course, it's that love, that commitment, which leads him to the cross, where we see the ultimate expression of his love for us. Jesus loves us in a way where, he is for, where we are foremost in his minds. As a 19th century Scottish minister, um, I think he's pronounced Robert Murray M. Shane, who said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, then I could face a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Can we take that knowledge that Jesus is so radically for us, so committed to us, loves us so much, can we take that knowledge constantly with us into our lives? Yes, of course, we can't get our heads around how God can know the needs of each of seven billion people in the world and respond to them as they pray all at the same time. But that's a problem with our imagination, isn't it? It's not a problem for God. And the joy that God shares with the angels when one person finds their way back to him is a joy that Jesus shares and he invites all of us to share in too. It's wonderful when someone comes to faith in Jesus and it's part of the church's call to share in spreading that word, in making him known. We can know that joy like the Samaritan woman. In verse 35, Jesus says, do you not say four months more and then the harvest? But look, the fields around you are ripe for harvest. The reaper is gathering fruit for eternal life. And what Jesus is imagining here is he's imagining it a bit like the world is a big field and I suppose the people are like the ears of corn. And he's, he's saying, actually, it's ready to be harvested. The people are out there, they're ready to hear the message. And that was true, obviously, when Jesus said it. But we might ask, is it true today? Are the fields ripe for harvest? Do people know about Jesus? Is it just a case of inviting them and correcting those misconceptions? Is there that common background of Christian knowledge and understanding that we can draw on? Well, the statistics are really interesting on this. And I was surprised. I don't know what the results are for this year's census, but in 2011, 50% of the population said they were Christian. 
And you might say, well, okay, that means cultural Christian. A few years ago, the Humanist Society, bear that in mind, the Humanist Society commissioned a piece of research and that piece of research found out that in the population, 25% of people agreed with the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Just imagine that. One in four people in our nation agreed with the statement that Jesus is the Son of God. Imagine what a movement for change that could be if everybody was pulling in the same direction. What a foundation to build on. You might have seen the BBC report a few days ago that 51% of 18 to 34-year-olds say they pray once a month. Half of 18 to 34-year-olds. What do you reckon the proportion might be amongst the over 55s? Anyone know? Give me an offer. Sorry? 37? Every day. Um, no, they were just asking once a month. Um, so what, what proportion of um, over 55s pray once a month? It's only 24%. It's interesting. And you might think, I certainly thought, that older people would be more likely to go into a place of worship. But this survey said that whereas 16% of the over 55s went to a place of worship every month, Intriguingly, the figure for younger people was 49%. That doesn't mean they're coming to a church and joining a service, but going to a place of worship every month, half of them. I wonder where they're going. But what a fascinating foundation to build on. You know, I think as Christians, we can sometimes think the world is completely against us and we're swimming against the tide. But there's an awful lot to connect with there. There's some good news. We can't, of course, take knowledge of Christianity for granted. You sometimes have to explain there's an Old Testament, there's a New Testament, all that kind of thing. But often, when you start talking, there's a lot of openness. But as we've seen in recent days, you can have a lot of something out there, like fuel, but it's the going to get it that's the problem. In Matthew and Luke, Jesus says, Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send workers into his harvest. I know as a church you do a lot of supporting of mission work overseas, and that's brilliant. I know that you support the work of the Church of England both here and across the diocese through parish share, and that's great, thank you. That money that you give supports the ministry you have here and supports places where they would never come close to affording their own ministers but if we just stay with the image of a field for a moment, imagine that. The field doesn't come to the reaper, does it? The reaper has to go into the harvest. You have to make an intentional effort to get out there. And for many years, churches, and I think particularly Anglican ones, have been relied on what you might call an attractional model, where you say, we're here, we're lovely and welcoming, it's a great place, Come and join us, 10.30 on a Sunday morning. I'm not saying that you do that, but that's often the way that lots of places work. We have to go, though, to where people are, to build the links, to serve the community, cultivate relationships, overcome some of those big challenges of our time. Because often what we find, of course, is that people are quite interested in Jesus, and they're open to the idea of God, 
but it's the actual reputation of the church that puts them off. In the Diocese of Bristol, we did a survey um, at the beginning of this year called Transforming Church. It was a series of conversations with people about their perceptions of the church, and we listened to people outside and people inside. And if you were part of that, thank you. One of the things we found is that issues like safeguarding, racism, lack of action on the environment, all of those things have an impact and they put people off. Often the local church has to reach out and be that friendly face because of the difficulties that we need to address um, both locally and nationally. We need to be consistent and making a real change. I think it's worth thinking about your own relationships too. I find this a particular challenge because, you know, life's busy, family is busy, don't get much of a chance to go and do things and meet people. What's your network of friends? Where are the people who aren't Christians? Where are you meeting them? Often, if you've got a really strong church, it's easier to have all your social networks as part of the fellowship, and that's very supportive. But where are those opportunities? Is it at work? Is it at the school gate? We have lots of carers coming in. I've realised that is the opportunity to show the love of Christ. And I wonder then, could you build on some of your interests, maybe join a running club or the gardening club, or when was the last time that someone on your street hosted a social for the neighbours? If you started now, you could build up towards the Queen's Jubilee. Think about the people you're already in contact with. Because the reaper has to go into the field and learn from experience. I, um, I was at Highworth last week, and they, like you, they have a rather old churchyard, and they leave part of it to wildlife. Um, and that's great because you only have to mow it once a year. Now, I would have thought that when you mow a churchyard, you'd get this petrol-driven strimmer out, but they're really committed to the environment. So what they use is scythes. And they had the scythe man. And he had these enormous scythes that were like five feet long with a great curved blade at the end. And if you slung them over your shoulder, you look like Grim Reaper. And he had to teach us how to use these things. And there's a real knack to it, the kind of swinging it just right and cutting it into the grass at the right angle and it's not a kind of height like that it's very much a sort of soaring motion and it took lots of experience to get it right our own experience being reapers in God's harvest field is maybe similar we need that practice need to keep on doing it reflect on what we're doing get better but of course Sometimes the power of testimony is so incredibly effective. And I love the way that this Samaritan woman goes out. And what is it she says in verse 29? Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's wonderful, isn't it? She's someone who has been completely ostracized by her community. She has had six husbands, she's on her seventh, and the other women of the town won't let her draw water because they'd all come out in the, in the cool of the day, in the morning, 
or in the evening, and that's when they get their water, because getting the water is a heavy, tiring job. And so they don't want anything to do with her. That's why she comes out at noon. But she goes back and she says to them, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Now they know what she did. You didn't have secrets in those days, tight communities. What she did is no news to them. What's news is that she's owning it. She's saying, yes, that's what I did. That was me. And I can stand up straight and I can talk about it and I can be forgiven because of Jesus. And I know that I'm accepted. And she's saying, come and see. Could this be the Messiah? She's not got it all sorted. There may still be questions. There's a lot to learn. But she's saying, could this be the Messiah? Come and see. And that, I think, encapsulates a lot of the call for us. Because we are called to talk about our own experience. If you talk about your story, nobody can say, well, that's wrong. You know, you can talk about faith, you can talk about the Bible, you can talk about doctrine, and people can argue with you. If you talk about what Jesus means to you, if you talk about the difference that he has made in your life, if you talk about what it means to walk with God every day, if you can do that, then that is incredibly powerful. And I'd challenge you to do that in your own words. Don't try and fit it into a formula of how it's supposed to be. But just express it for yourself. Think about it when you go back home. And she says, come and see. And they do, don't they? They turn up. They listen to Jesus. And at the end, there are those wonderful words. We no longer believe just because of what you said, but we've heard for ourselves. And now we know and believe that this is the Messiah. That's God's job. God's job is to help people, enable people to believe. Our job is to point to Jesus and say, come and see. So Lord, as we think of those we know who don't yet know you, as we think of those whom we love, those for whom we pray, Lord, help us to point to Jesus. Help us to speak of what we know. Fill us with your spirit. Give us that confidence. Help us to see where there is that openness. Where there is something that people want to know and hear of your love. <coughs> Create those opportunities for us, we pray, and give us the courage and the power in your spirit to take them. In Jesus' name, amen.